And welcome to this episode of G220 Radio. My name is Mike, and if you're on YouTube, you probably notice, hey, that was last week's show. And that's because I completely forgot to change the video, and Ricky's not here to remind me to change the video. And so completely on my fault. Um, but this is not going to be talking about theology um, after the fall. No, we are on episode number 570. And this is Baptist Catechism intro and question one. So we'll be looking at primarily thinking through the first question of the Baptist Catechism. Um, and But before that, we need to know a little bit about it. Now, obviously, kind of or as you've listened to the show, I like to quote from the Baptist Catechism a lot. And a lot of this is just kind of my own history with the Baptist Catechism is we were, we, as in my wife and I, were trying to figure out what we wanted to teach second through fifth graders. And we had done some like Bible studies with kind of the first group where we were kind of going through different topics in the Bibles and have them memorize it. And we we're getting a new group of kids with, Basically, kind of the first group of kids were all public school, went to public schools. And now the second group were our homeschool and needed a little bit, maybe some more structure. And so we used another program. And then I we found out about the Baptist Catechism, found out the Baptist Catechism was set to music by um, a prof former professor at Southern Seminary. Um, that I can't remember off the top of my head. And we decided to go through this and we are, we were working through it a second time. We stopped and did the Nicene Creed um, between the first and second time. A lot of it just to kind of the Nicene Creed was because that's what we recite every Sunday at church. And it gave the kids the opportunity to learn and partake and to think about a little bit more what these words mean, not just kind of repeating them on a screen. They actually kind of understand what they're saying and hoping that they would believe it. And then the Baptist catechism and in the same way is a way for my wife and I to teach the kids the truths about God. Um, being second to fifth grade, a lot of them know the stories. They can tell you the stories. And so some of this is kind of putting into place a construct to now think about these stories that are going about it. And here we have a comment on the screen. Dr. Oric is the prof that put the music. So yeah, it is Dr. Jim Oric that did it. And you can buy that CD at Founders Ministries. If I remember, I'll try to put a link in the description because it's, a, with music, we learn well. We remember things better. And so having this opportunity to teach these kids was something fun because there's music involved. But yeah, we can also teach them the elementary elements of the faith and the different parts of it. So that's my history with the Baptist Catechism and why um, we kind of quoted me. A lot of it is I was studying it and different questions week in, week out, and, and learning myself kind of new ways to think about these things and and kind of grounding a terminology. 
Um, we haven't taught our kids the Baptist catechism yet, which may sound hypocritical, but we are teaching them the boys and girls catechism. And that has been benefits. So just in catechisms in general benefit for conversations I've had with my daughter. She's a little bit older. She's starting to kind of think on her own and ask questions. And the catechism allows me to help her think through some of her questions. Something that kind of in the first group that we had in our youth group, the second to fifth graders, that I didn't have language for. And, and now the Baptist Catechism has provided me with such language. And so what is the Baptist Catechism? And what is a catechism? Let's start with that. I think that's probably most important. And catechism is simply a teaching tool that uses questions and answers. And so there is a question and there's an answer. And there are quite a few catechisms. Probably the most famous ones is the Heidelberg Catechism and the Westminster Shorter Catechism. There's also Westminster Larger Catechisms. The Catholic Church has catechisms. There's catechisms everywhere. Um, I've already mentioned the Boys and Girls Catechisms. There is the Orthodox Catechism, which is also Baptist and kind of a rephrase of the Heidelberg. And so we have these different catechisms, these different tools to learn the faith. In fact, the Baptist Catechism, I have a um, new typeset of one of the editions here, talks about it in this way. A brief instruction in the principles of Christian religion and because they're pretty much Puritans, agreeable to the confession of faith put forth by the elders and brethren of many congregation, congregations of Christians baptized upon profession of their faith in London and in the country owing to the doctrine of personal election and final preservation. So what they're saying here is this is a brief introduction to... Basically, the confession of faith, and this, and they're in, and they're kind of thinking through it. This is the second London confession of faith, written in 1977, approved in 19, or sorry, written in 1677, approved in 1689, and then finally released in the 1689. That is why it's called the 1689. And the the Baptist Catechism kind of came out of the idea that similar to Westminster that we have the confession and we we need a catechism to teach. And so the churches in London and their associational meeting in 1693 voted on to create the Baptist catechism. And Jim Renahan, who's done a lot of work on this, has mentioned that he's only found the fifth edition and, and kind of in that time, the fifth edition meant that it was been published or printed five times. And so, and this was in 1695. So it was finished somewhere between 1693 and 1695 with four other printings before then. Um, so we don't know like if there were changes in the mix of these because um, we just don't have anything earlier. But what we do know is that it was done very quickly. It is done 
and uses very similar questions as the Westminster Shorter Catechism. And in fact, my wife will do this is when a Baptist quotes the Westminster on a question that is in the Baptist Catechism. I always kind of like, he should just, just say the Baptist Catechism says, you know, let's, let's be Baptist, you know, kind of, maybe this is like cage stage Baptist Catechism feeling or something like that. Anyways, um, it's often called the Keech's Catechism, but history seems to say maybe that Williams Collins wrote it. He's the pastor at the Petty France church. I don't put this in my notes. So I'm kind of doing it on memorize. And, um, but Keech, probably was involved with it in some sense. Keach is a well-known figure. He's a big head in kind of the particular deterministic Baptist churches at this time. And what we also know about it, and you can find this version on Founders' website, is that the the Charleston Association adopts it in 1813. And so the Charleston Association is kind of the precursor to what will become the Southern Baptist Convention. In fact, the Charleston Association still around today in Charleston, South Carolina, is kind of the model in which all Southern Baptist associations are kind of set up, at least in the regional sense. And so this is kind of a, you know, a big deal here. It is out of the um, Charleston Association that you have kind of the founding of what is now known as the Furham University, named after one of the um, pastors at First Baptist Charleston and also involved in the Charleston Association. And they would have a seminary there, a training ground. That seminary would leave Greenville, South Carolina, and move all the way to Louisville, Kentucky, and is now called the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. And it is kind of to think about the tradition, the abstract of principles, which rules and governs the theology at Southern Seminary, is an abstract of the Second London Baptist Confession of Faith. And so when we, we think about the influence of kind of the second London, even in Southern Baptist life in the beginning of Southern Baptist life, that the Baptist catechism is now a tool that even in the 1813s that can be used to help teach the fundamental principles of the faith. And that's what they are. And some are longer, some are shorter. But in the end, they have a goal. And that's to teach the faith. And that's kind of all catechisms. Even the Catholic catechism seeks to teach Roman Catholics their theology as much as the Heidelberg tries to teach and the Westminster. So thinking about now the Baptist catechism and kind of a broader, it's broader context. It's coming in, it's 1693. So by this time, the Heidelberg Catechism and the both the Westminster Shorter and Larger Catechisms have been released. They are known. They are being used. While the Baptists may have beat the Presbyterians in getting a confession out, that is, the First London was first published in 1644. 
and they didn't release theirs until later in 1640s. Um, we didn't, they beat us on the catechism, but to, to consider, cause when we, we looking at all three, they all start differently. Now, if you read the on Westminster shorter chasm and the ba shorter catechism and the Baptist catechism, there are a lot of similar questions with similar answers outside of our theological differences, mainly in baptism. But I want to look at the first question out of both of these. So the Westminster Catechism thinks about and considers what is the chief end of man? That's the shorter. And then the larger catechism says, what is the chief and highest end of man? A little extra, some more verbiage there. The Baptist Catechism starts with, who is the first and chiefest being? They're, they're different. When we consider the Heidelberg and also another famous reformed catechism coming out of the continental Europe, out of Germany, it starts, its first question is, what is your only comfort in life and death? So they all start differently. And kind of researching, there's really nothing online that I have found that explains, like, why do these catechisms all start differently? They all begin in different places. You know, I could make a jab here about how the Baptists, you know, we start with God, not us. Who's the chief in a man? You know, that kind of seems kind of man-centered. I won't go down that route. That's not fair. What I do think, and kind of as I was reading about why the Heidelberg and the Westminster Shorter and Larger Catechism start the way that they do, is that it starts the kind of emphasis or the point in which the catechism is going to develop theologically. And so when we think about how these start. So we'll start with the Heidelberg. The Heidelberg starts with what is your only comfort in life and death is focusing on what God has done in our salvation and then how this should reflect in our lives, mainly assuring us of eternal life and the willing and ready to live for him. So eternal life, willing and ready to live for him. And as the confession, the, the Heidelberg starts, it develops what this now means about what does it mean, how God works in our salvation, and then what does it mean, and how does it assure us of eternal life, and how does it help us to be willing and ready to live for him. The Westminster Shorter and Larger Catechism presents this this presents to us a lofty goal as Christians to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. Those are essentially the same answers on both of them. Before moving into scripture as our means of knowing how to accomplish this task and then onto knowing God and the, the salvation that is portrayed through scripture. And because Baptists like are trying to, in their time frame, to show their orthodoxy 
and commitment to the reformed faith apart just happening just believing differently in baptism that we are to be baptized as believers professing the faith that could the baptists kind of my theory and thinking through this and hopefully people can shed light on this is i think the baptists are doing something similar it makes sense of what baptists are doing with the second london and could the authors or um Hercule William Collins, sorry, could he be setting up and thinking about who is this God that we are? And where the Bible kind of starts with but God, or in the sorry, not but God, in the beginning, God, there's presumption with God. The Baptist catechism starts then with this who is who is god or who is the first and chiefest being who is the highest one and then the next question ought everyone to believe there is a god and the question is yes everyone ought to believe there is a god and is there great sin and folly for those who do not and so there is this idea of god being exalted high he's the first and chief as being we'll talk about this in a little bit more detail in a bit but that he is highest and everyone ought to believe and kind of a a personal faith and i think this kind of pushes a little bit against infant baptism and kind of some of the the presbyterian belief in that the children are baptized kind of on, in hope of their salvation, but kind of because of their parents' faith, because God has granted the, ch the, the family a child to raise and nurture, and he is then baptized kind of into the covenant and in and hope for a faith and hope of their own faith. So they're kind of baptized in one sense in their parents' faith. And I, I wonder if that is, again, some of the draw that kind of Baptists are saying to be a Christian is to have your own faith. And then how does this work out? How do we have our own faith? Well, we learn it in Scripture. God proclaims God can be known in his works of creation and providence, but he is, it is effectively done by his word and spirit. This is how the third question goes. And then it goes into the, what is scripture? Who is God? What is God? What is the works of creation? What are the works of providence? The downfall of Adam and Eve as a first parents, into what is sin into the redeemer. And it kind of then explains through now all of it. So this first question really sets up in one sense, the, the beginning principles in Baptist faith, that one that everyone ought to believe in God, who is the first and chiefest being. So who is the first and chiefest being 
God is the first and chiefest being. So when we think about now this answer, what does it mean that God is first? And what does it mean that God is chiefest? And then being will be kind of more developed in question seven on what is God. And so the Baptist Catechism in the 1695 edition gives two scripture references for this um, verse. And the Charleston Association adds a third kind of indicating part of the chiefest. So we're kind of going to look at the first two under the first and then the third one under the chiefest and kind of look at it exegetically and see where the Baptists, where our forefathers are pulling from these texts. So the first text is in Isaiah. It is Isaiah 44.6. And so in this part of Isaiah to kind of set up the context is we have the um, really rich passages about the coming servant, coming Messiah. In 40 and 44 and um, I think 48. So you, Isaiah and is giving us just rich texts about who the servant of the Lord is going to be, who is the Messiah. Obviously, it it comes all the way to Isaiah fifty three and his sacrificial atonement. But here in Isaiah 44, we read in kind of the first section, But now hear, O Jacob, my servant, Israel, who I have chosen. Thus says the Lord who made you, who formed you from the womb, and will help you. Fear not, O Jacob, my servant, Jeshurun, whom I have chosen. For I will pour water on the thirsty land and streams of dry ground. I will pour out my spirit upon your offspring and my blessing on your descendants. That shall spring up among the grass like willows of flowing streams. This one will say, I am the Lord's. Another will call on the name of Jacob. Another one write on his hand, the Lord's, and name himself by the name of Israel. Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel, and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts. I am the first, I am the last. Besides me, there is no God. Who is like me? Let him proclaim it. Let him declare and set it before me. Since I have anointed an ancient people, let them declare what has come and what will happen. Fear not, nor be afraid. I have told you from old and declared it. You are my witnesses. There is there a God beside me? There is no rock. I know not any. And here the first reference is Isaiah 44, 6. Thus says the Lord, God of Israel, of his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am first and I am the last. Besides me, there is no God. And this verse comes on this heel of God choosing and saving a people. We see he will pour out his spirit. They will spring up. They will be called the Lord's. And then he goes, I am the first and I'm the last. And, and really what we see here is this Trinitarian framework. You have the Spirit, you have the Lord, you have his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts. All of these are kind of names in which we will see 
described better in the New Testament of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And so there is this calling of people and then God telling them, I am the first and I'm the last. John Gill, a Baptist, talking about this verse kind of emphasizes and points out that the verse says that he is the first cause and the last end. All things of all things in nature, of providence and grace. There is none before him. God is re representing himself at being in the beginning and to the end. The, and Calvin talks about this verse not necessarily meaning or talking about God being from everlasting to everlasting, but that God is the same from beginning to end. And that he is the one who comes first. And when we, we think about this, and, and again, we're reminded of Genesis 1. That before the creation of the world, there is only three people who exist. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And there is none other. They are before us, and they will be after us. Again, in Isaiah 48, we see another connection with this first and last. Verse 12, listen to me, O Jacob, and Israel who I'm called. I am he, I am the first, and I am the last. My hands laid the foundation of the earth, and my right hand spread out the heavens. When I call to them, they shall they stand forth together. Again, God is before creation. He is first in creation. We can think of Psalm 33, 9. For he spoke and it came to be. He commanded and it stood firm. Talking here again about creation. And thinking about God being before it. He is creating it. And that was an example, one of the examples that Benjamin Bedham in his commentary on the Baptist Catechism. So Bedham writes in the early 1700s, 1730. So several years after the Catechism, but still really frisling. He talks about how God is first in creation with Psalm 33 9. He also mentions here to help us to think about that. He is first in government. Psalm 30, 93, 2. Your throne is established from of old, and you are from everlasting. That God is the chief, the first king, and the one who rules over the earth. And we, we kind of think that in creative terms, as he has dominion. But we should also think about how kind of how this relates to us. Psalm 139, 17 through 18. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast the sum of them. If I would count them, they are no more than the sand. I awake 
and I am still with you. Here, Benjamin Bedham really emphasizes the second part of verse 18, that I awake and I am still with you. Is God first in our thoughts? This is kind of what he's wanting us to think about. If we're saying that God is the first being, he is the first cause, he is preeminent over all, is he first in our thoughts? Are we heavenly-minded? Are we thinking about God? I think maybe this challenges us, challenges me, about what are my thoughts? Am I, am I taking them captive, treating them in the Word of God, speaking truth to false thoughts? Is God first in our thoughts? Are we, I guess how Paul would say it, are we thinking of things above us? He also, in kind of thinking about us, is are we first in giving up to God? He goes to First Corinthians or Second Corinthians 8 for this one. And Paul, writing his fourth letter, third, possibly third letter to the Corinthians. And he's going to talk about the Macedonians. He starts off in verse, in chapter 8, verse 1. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches in Macedonia. For in severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. I think uh, their abundance of joy, their extreme poverty, have overflowed in a wealth of generosity. They, they're a the grace of God in their lives, and they're willing to give. Verse 3, For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means, of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then to the will of God to us. Accordingly, we urge Titus that he has had started so that he would complete among you this act of grace. But as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in earnestness, and in our love for you, we see that you excel in this act of grace also. So what is Paul talking about here with the believers and uh, Macedonia? that they gave themselves first to the Lord. Kind of the, the idea of being willing to do what the Lord commands and ask, being ready in the Spirit to go and be faithful to God. And I guess one way we could put it in 
Ephesians is that them giving themselves first is understanding that God has given them good works that they should walk in them. In Ephesians 2.10. And so to think about what does it mean that God is first as the first being, and then how does that play out? That we should not only in our thoughts, but our words and deeds give ourselves up first to God, to his commandments, to his rule in our lives and our obedience and our willingness to sacrifice ourselves to make Christ, to make God known to all. Again, the emphasis on, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us, giving themselves up for God to use them as he sees fit, even in a time of severe test of affliction. They are giving themselves up for God and to do it. So for God to be first is to be God, to be not only the first cause of all creation, of the government, but even in our own thoughts and what we do. Now, chiefest is similar in idea. But here, I think there is this idea of not only being kind of first, but being supreme, being top. Again, the Charleston Association adds um, Psalm 97 to the verse references. So we'll look at it. And Psalm 97 starts off with the Lord reigns. Let the earth rejoice. Let the many coastlands be glad. And then verses 2 through 5, we see the majesty of God. The clouds and thick darkness are all around him. Righteousness and justice are the foundations of his throne. The fire goes before him and burns up his adversaries all, adversaries all around. His lightning lights up the world. The earth sees and trembles. The mountains melt like wax before the Lord, before the Lord of all the earth. So verse 1 calls us to rejoice. The Lord reigns. Let the earth rejoice. And then we see his power and majesty. They come in. Verses 6 and 7, as we as we think about kind of what this psalm means, is that the heavens proclaim his righteousness and all the people see his glory. And the worshipers of images are put to shame, who makes their boast and worthless idols. Worship him, all you gods. So there, you see God's judgment. They proclaim his righteousness. The the. All the worshipers are of images are put to shame because they're wor worshiping something not as glorious. The people see his glory. They see his righteousness. And now they're called to worship him. And then the psalmist terms to Zion. Zion. 
the God's people. Zion hears and is glad, and the daughters of Judah rejoice because of your judgments, O Lord. And verse 9, the verse that they picked, for you, O Lord, are most high over all the earth. You are exalted far above all gods. The psalmist here shows and tells us there is these so-called gods, these images that sinful men have made and developed so that they can kind of in exchanging the truth for a lie, worshiping these images, these this created, these images created by things God has created instead of the one who created them. And the psalmist leads then into this idea that he is most high over all the earth. There is none higher. There is no one, no thing higher than God. He is the chiefest, the highest. And that he's just not exalted a little bit above. But the, the, the exaggeration, you are exalted far above all gods. These, these idols don't compare. And so this idea of chiefest is just seeing God high and lifted up. And that his majesty and his dominion rule. In Exodus 15, we see Israel proclaim God as the chiefest among all the gods again. Here in Exodus, um, just before this, is the crossing of the Red Sea, and they've come across, and the armies of Israel have been, or the armies of Egypt have been conquered. They have been drowned by the flood. And what happens? They sing a song, a song of praise to the Lord. And in Exodus 15, 11, 12, they say, Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? You have stretched out your right hand, and the earth swallowed them. Again, they, they see and they notice. They're looking around. They saw what God just did. And what they proclaim is how God is above the other gods. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? And there is no one like him among the gods. For he's the chiefest. He's the highest. Luke 10, 25-28. Here, this is kind of the story before the parable of the good sorrow. A good Samaritan, sorry. And Jesus is talking to the lawyer. And the and Luke records this. And behold, a lawyer stood up and put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit li eternal life? And that's a good question. We all need to know what, what must we do to inherit eternal life? That is what is the biggest plague. And so Jesus said to him, what is written in the law? How do you read it? How, how do you read it? And the lawyer answered, you shall love the Lord 
your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbors as yourself. And he said to him, you have answered correctly, do this, and you will live. And what Benjamin Badham is kind of here, this too, is emphasizing in this idea of chiefest, is that we should love the Lord with all of our heart. That he is in his exalted state, that he should be our chief love, our highest love. And that we do, again, with all of our strength, with all of our soul, with all of our mind, that we love that that we love the Lord with everything we have, and it is our chiefest love. It is our greatest love. He is in in one sense, again, we can kind of use the same language that he should be our first love. But he is again high and lifted up. Again, Benjamin Badham thinking about these this kind of these terms thinking about this question, writing toward this congregation, says in, in Matthew 10, 28, also quotes Matthew 10, 28, that our chief fear should be God. Well, why should it be God? Well, Matthew 10, 28 is where the Lord tells us that we should fear the one who can kill both body and soul. We shouldn't fear man who can only kill the body, but fear the one, fear God, who can kill the body and the soul. So our chief fear should be God. And we should then, in that fear, come to him and, and be with him and exalt him as who he is. And so when we, we think about this question and answer, who is the first and chiefest being? God is the first and chiefest being. That the Baptist Catechism starts with us thinking about the exalted state of our God. As triune, which they will develop later. And that our, our affections and our mind and our actions should be directed to to this one who is above all other gods who has where there is no other rock there is no other god there is nothing as high or as lofty as yahweh there's none and so that's how they started thinking about the glory and majesty of God, thinking about him as our creator, as our ruler, and then how we are to, to act in our thoughts and how we give up of ourselves for the sake of God the sake of Christ, this is what then the catechism will build on. As we learn about 
this God who saves sinners who were once her once his enemies are now his friends and not only friends but family and he does it through his son Jesus Christ our Lord who gave himself up for us and then his work is applied to our heart by the spirit and the act of regeneration and the washing away of our sins and then calls us to be obedient to his word and the catechism will stress this chiefly as the moral law and the ten commandments and then we find our redemption in them and we find that it is made effectual by the spirit through the word through the ordinances and through prayer as God changes our hearts for him. And when we think about these things, when we study the confessions, when we study the catechism, and we study them along with our Bibles, we get to see God and our affections, and he becomes first and chiefest in our lives as we get to know him as he changes us these are why we have been given tools like catechisms like confessions so that we can know god deeper because god is the first and chiefest being and that has been this episode of G220 Radio. Looking at the Baptist Catechism, an introduction, kind of working through question one. We will be on again next week. Ricky will be with us again. We'll be back. And we're going to be talking to Pastor Mike Waters and thinking about the continuity and discontinuity between the Old and New Testaments, a topic in which is important for us to think about. It impacts how we interpret the Bible, how we interpret the Old Testament and its applications, how we interpret the New Testament and its use of the Old Testament. Is there continuity? Is there discontinuity? Is there a mixture of both? We have That is essentially the dividing line between covenant theology and dispensational theology. So you're going to want to come tomorrow, next week, Tuesday, 9 p.m., for the live recording on Facebook and on YouTube with Mike Waters on the continuity and discontinuity. And as always, you can catch the episodes on Podbean. We are behind. Yes, hopefully by the time you're listening to this, we're no longer behind. But we are a little behind on getting episodes out on Podbean. Life has just been busy for both of us and not able to always commit time required to get everything transferred over. And so that has been episode number 570 here on G220 Radio. Until next week, God bless.